Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Patrick Pitaluga, co-founder of Grubbly Farms. Now, on the surface, Grubbly Farms is very simple. They raise these grubs, these insects, and they sell them to backyard farmers, right? People who want to feed their chickens with protein-packed, calcium-rich, nutritious food. But Grubbly Farms actually doubles as a waste management company because these grubs are actually fed food scraps. So with every pound of Grubbly's purchased, over 10 pounds of food waste has been diverted from landfills. And in the episode, Patrick and I will discuss how a clickbait article actually got him into the insect business, the trials and tribulations of running a DTC business around insects, the promise of insects as a waste management solution, and the massive size of the opportunity at hand. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Patrick Pitaluga, co-founder of Grubbly Farms. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Patrick, let's kick off with the basics. What is Grubbly Farms? So, Grubbly Farms is a animal nutrition company that specializes in insect-based protein. And right now, we're focusing on the backyard chicken market specifically, but we ultimately have plans to feed pretty much any animal that can benefit from an insect-based protein. Super interesting. Okay, so... What's funny is when Dan, our producer, sent along your company and your website, I was doing some digging and the backstory is super funny. So mind just going into a little of the backstory. What was the Eureka moment and kind of what inspired you to actually start Grubbly Farms? Yeah, sure. So my cousin, Sean Warner, and I started the company back in 2015. And it really started when Sean had read some article online that was like, you'll never guess what people will be eating in the year 2050. And the the whole article pretty much was about that insects are going to be required to be part of the solution for how we feed people in the future because current agricultural methods, particularly looking at pigs and cows, are just not sustainable enough to feed the growing population. So that kind of got us started looking at just edible insects. It was more out of a curiosity standpoint rather than actually like a desire to start a company or or do anything with it. But as we started reading through edible insects and the potential solutions that they present for closing the agricultural loop for providing sustainable protein, it became quickly apparent to us that this is something that's going to be huge and something that was going to be really important and something that we wanted to be a part of. So with that notion, we started Grubbly Farms not really knowing what we were going to do, what markets we were going to service, but our first hypothesis, if you will, is that we could grow some type of insects and turn it into a burger patty as like a westernized version of an insect diet to make it more consumer friendly. We quickly realized that pretty much nobody would be interested in that. Um <laughs> and started looking at different avenues and ultimately came across the poultry market. However, even then, when we started speaking with chicken farmers, feed mills, and things of that nature, they told us that they would need thousands of pounds of protein a week just to keep up with their demand. And 
and that was not going to happen from the get-go. So ultimately, or we eventually came across the backyard poultry market, and that's that market was new but growing very quickly, and it was also a market that needed a product like ours up until we came out with the product Grublies. They were feeding their chickens mealworms primarily grown in China and imported over here. Uh, our product Grublies, a USA-grown alternative that has 50 times as much calcium and is all around just much healthier for, for chickens. But I actually have to jump mm-hmm. ahead a little bit. One of the first things that we did when starting the company, because we initially started the company looking at actually raising the insects ourselves, was start breeding flies in our apartment laundry room. So we set up a fly net or like a fly cage and started breeding black soldier fly grubs, which is the, the species of insect that we're using today. Started breeding them in the laundry room under various temperature, humidity, various light sources until we finally got them to breed. And that kind of kicked us off down the path of, of raising and actually raising the insects. Okay, so there's a couple terms that I would love for you to unpack in your explanation. So the first of which was backyard poultry. What does that mean and who is that customer? Uh, backyard chicken refers to pretty much people who do not identify themselves as farmers. These people own chickens, but they're not farmers, they're not homesteaders. Mm-hmm. Their chickens are not a utility that they need to see a return on their investment, whether it is through feeding their friends and family or selling the eggs or selling the meat. These are people who have chickens more so out of the enjoyment um, and pleasure of just having and taking care of these animals. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So there's about 8% of Americans today have uh, backyard chickens. And then it's about 6% of Americans have pet chickens. So like that's even a further subset <laughs> of backyard chickens. Like these are people who have anywhere from like four to 10 chickens. Every single one of them has names. They get fed treats. They get bought toys pretty much. If, if it exists for dogs or cats, there's a product for it that equivalent for for pet chickens so that that's the market that we're primarily serving and it's really funny it's a market that i was not familiar with at all five years ago but have come to love we had chickens for a while and it's just so fun and the people there are so passionate and it's a more niche market so it is a pretty unique or, or common thing that unites people if you go up to somebody and say I have a dog. You're like, okay, cool. So does 80 million Americans or 100 million Americans or whatever the, the stat is. Like there's tons of people and it's not really a, a unique thing anymore to that, w- mm-hmm. that would like join together. Whereas if you have chickens, that's still pretty unique, even though it's become more popular. And so they're really passionate and sharing and a wonderful community to be a part of and to be able to offer a great product like ours. Man, that is Super interesting. It just goes to show how much of a bubble I am in my, you know, shoebox New York City apartment. And it begs the broader question of the what I'll call non-traditional pets. And I don't even want to call it non-traditional because 8% of the U.S. population is a very meaningful number. But you look at some of the fastest growing categories in commerce, like pet and pet care and pet insurance. And, you know, I would say for me personally, and, and I would assume the average American would default to the dog and cat. But 
clearly there is a much broader tale of animals that probably have been neglected by the typical private company or founder. And what it sounds like here is you really kind of hit one of these kind of hidden gold mines. So talk me through how does the insect solve some of these broader food waste problems? And then talk to me about how the product specifically closes what you call the agricultural loop. That's what, That was a really interesting phenomenon. Yeah, sure. So the insect, the, the black soldier fly that we're using, is typically grown on food waste, at least the ones that we're, that we're using. But the, the species itself is it's actually pretty fascinating. They can eat almost any type of organic matter. They can eat any, pretty much any type of food waste. They can eat animal waste, and they can even eat human waste. And there's uh, been lots of research going on as well about how they can be used for sanitation infrastructure because surprisingly, it's been shown that they have antimicrobial properties and they've been able to reduce the uh, amount of E. coli and salmonella and waste by like 90%. Wow. So it's really, really interesting there. But the grubs that, that, that we use are all raised on food waste diverted from landfills. In the U.S., there's about 52 million tons of food that gets deposited in, in landfills every year. And there it breaks down into methane gas, which is a greenhouse gas about 20 times more harmful than CO2. And so instead of letting all this food waste go to landfills, our goal and our vision is to have insect farms all over the country that would work with food manufacturers, food processors, uh, waste collectors, and take that food waste and instead feed it to the grubs. Those grubs then obviously grow off the food waste. A, a byproduct of the grubs is actually a mm-hmm. uh, natural fertilizer. It's actually the, the grubs' poop. And then the grubs themselves mm-hmm. can be used as a source of protein for chickens, dogs, cats, goats, fish. I mean, it, it can be going to and, and pigs and cows as well, but that's less of our focus. But they can mm-hmm. be going, and even humans. So... That's what I meant by completing the agricultural loop is that you have food getting produced and instead of it ending its life in the landfill, it's able to go back into the food supply chain by being fed to grubs that are then going to go feed chickens, fish, dogs, cats, whatever. Super, super interesting. And what is the value exchange or economic exchange between these larger food manufacturers and yourself? Are they donating this to you? Like, How, how does that work exactly? Sure. So our farms, I guess it, it depends on location and size of the farm and the geographic region in general. And some places where recycling is very readily available and it's not a premium, it's typically just given as a donation. But in areas where there's not a lot of composting, there's not a lot of uh, other food waste recycling options, the farms can actually be paid for to take the food waste so there's uh, potential revenue there, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a pretty, pretty crazy model. Okay. So question for you and just to pause and reflect on everything you've said so far, what I'm hearing is that when you casually stumbled into the opportunity, what you're finding is that there's actually this pretty interesting cascade of opportunities that build off of this eureka moment or this realization. And one of the tougher challenges of operating an enterprise of this nature is probably less about growing the 
kind of core business, but saying no to all of these other opportunities, or at least trying to think through how you prioritize X versus Y versus Z. And my hunch, I mean, you, you talk about 52 million pounds of waste. To what extent is that pathway really meaningful versus the DTC product that is Grubly today? I mean, how are you thinking about consumer versus enterprise? Lay kind of the, the state of the landscape to me and how you're thinking about prioritizing all of the above. When we first started Gribbly Farms, we wanted to do it all. So we initially set up with the goal of raising the insects ourselves and bringing them to market and only selling insects that, that were raised in a farm that we physically operated. As we continued to grow, and especially after we started selling Grublies into the backyard chicken market, we realized that that was not going to be feasible. Even though there's so much opportunity with bug farms in terms of food recycling, you have the byproduct of the fertilizer coming from the grill, but you have protein. Like There's still a ton of upfront costs and operating costs that comes associated with those. And we initially bit off more than we could chew. And I would say quickly, but more so slowly realized that we were not going to be able to do it all, so to speak, that we needed to focus even further focus where we're heading in the insect industry in order to maximize or grow our business, but also maximize our impact. And so what we pivoted to was being the product and brand for insects and instead partnering with other farms located around the country that we're trying to get off the ground and working with them to help find them an avenue for their bugs to go because these farms that I'm talking about did not have the direct consumer. So by partnering with these farms, we're able to spread our impact both geographically, but also it allows us to keep up with demand. The more demand there is, the more we sell, that means the more bugs that are being raised, the more bugs that are being raised, the more food waste that's being consumed by them. And so that that's kind of how we realized how, how we mm-hmm. can have the greatest impact. And as a result, the amount of food waste that we have been, or like that we can attribute to our sales is over 2 million pounds at this point and is steadily growing, or is, I, I guess is actually growing more so exponentially each month. And again, to a much greater effect than if we had just decided to limit our growth, only sell what we could grow in our farm and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Something that I've been particularly interested in as of late is the effect of COVID on different categories of of commerce. And over the last few episodes, we've heard really kind of a a spectrum of of responses, some that have benefited, some the complete opposite. So at Grubbly, how have you seen COVID affect day-to-day operations, demand, you know, all the above? I would say that we're we're one of the fortunate companies. We've seen a fairly large increase in demand since COVID really started being an issue almost two months ago. I believe that because we are primarily an e-commerce-based business doing direct-to-consumer, whereas even though the poultry or backyard chicken industry is rapidly growing and changing and modernizing, it still is largely done in brick-and-mortar stores at the retail level. And so as people stop going into stores or trying to refrain from going to stores to buy their products, they looked online to to get their chickens food because 
I mean, they're pets. No one's going to just like let their pet starve, obviously. So as they started looking online, they come across Colby Farms. Again, we're one of the only companies that sells chicken feed online direct to consumers. So I believe that's why we have benefited through it. In addition, this part is kind of interesting. Aside from toilet paper and cleaning supplies being like hoarded and purchased in huge quantities, baby chicks have been going out of stock all over the country and hatcheries cannot keep up with the demand. As people started to go to the grocery stores and see that eggs and things like that were, I guess, eggs were out of stock, their next reaction was to go and buy baby chicks so they could have their own chickens. So pretty much all over the country, there's been a shortage for for baby chicks. Wow. Interesting. And I, you know, I guess tangentially, <laughs> you're looking at, look at just the the crazy pet adoption trend we've seen kind of infiltrate the American populace at large. I think every single week I'm seeing someone in my immediate network or extending network ad- adopting, you know, a new, new golden retriever or whatever. What, something that I've been hearing grow louder and louder over the last seven to 10 days is this notion of the food supply chain. And I guess depending on what camp you're in, the common denominator across this conversation is that it's fundamentally broken. And you're seeing key stakeholders across the supply chain, farmers, manufacturers, retail, everything in between, point fingers. And what I want to hopefully do in this next question is, in your mind and what you're seeing given your position in the industry, can you just unpack the notion of the food supply chain being broken for the dummy listener like myself? And then what are the core causes of this? And what are, if any, the low-hanging fruit opportunities to solve a remedy? That is a, a pretty pretty big question. And I don't think that anybody specifically has all the answers. I do know that while we have seen greater demand, our, our supply chain certainly has been impacted. For example, as a result of restaurants being interrupted and no longer purchasing nearly as much food as they once did as a result of, of reduced workforce or, or labor forces being out there. Our, the factories that some of our farms work with have pretty much shuttered their, their production, which means there's less food waste for our farms to take. And then in addition, the farms, the packers, the fulfillment centers, like all of those are operating at reduced efficiencies just because they are keeping social distancing guidelines instead of working two feet apart they're working six to ten feet apart and the Mm -hmm. phone centers and so i think that's in terms of why there's starting to be a shortage i think that it's a lot of the laborers that are getting impacted and either adhering to guidelines on social distancing wearing proper ppe but from what it sounds like there's not going to there's not as much social distancing going on. I know that of recently there's been a lot of talk about the meat packing and that mm-hmm. there's been some positive covid tests there. Obviously if a factory has to shut down like that's the area that they service around them is going to be heavily impacted. Just I think I think one of them was a Tyson plant. So I guess they process 
tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of chickens every day. And so a one or two day lapse in production is just going to be that much shortage for grocery stores and things of that nature mm-hmm. uh, that, so, we're, that we're otherwise depending on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an interesting development over the last week that I saw was with companies that are producing some type of alt meat, beyond meat hit record, you know, top line, bottom line revenues, impossible foods just landed a massive distribution increase with Kroger. So I think at a high level, it's going to be really interesting to watch over the next 12, 18 months to what extent the pandemic has accelerated some of these core cracks in the existing food supply chain. And uh, at the same time, to what extent these larger retailers, both Endpoint and Big Box, will start seeking out alternative sources that are what some will call anti-fragile or, or less vulnerable to breaks of this nature. What I want to do is zoom out a little bit further and discuss the kind of, I don't want to call alt protein industry, but all these different really interesting inventions and breakthroughs across non-traditional food supply sources like insects, you know, plant-based meats. What, in your opinion, has been some of the more fascinating or interesting breakthroughs on this front over the last year or two? Uh, so it certainly has been interesting to watch Beyond Meat's IPO and watch the adoption rate of uh, plant-based meats. I think that plant-based meats are certainly here to stay, and particularly in the consumer market. I don't think that insects will ever be as mainstream. It just seems, from a visual standpoint, much more appealing to eat a plant-based <laughs> burger than an insect-based burger, but I, I, I easily could be wrong. <laughs> One of the things specifically in the insect market that is very interesting is it was recently proven that mealworms which is the larval stage of the darkling beetle, can eat styrofoam and convert it into a safe biodegradable waste. So that's very interesting. And then this part, I'm even more skeptical until I I see additional research on. They said that the meat, if you will, of the mealworm is not impacted by eating styrofoam. And so they are still technically edible and non-toxic. Again, what? I don't think you're going to be eating styrofoam-fed mealworms, but <laughs> given that some of the weird things that we feed factory-raised chickens and mm-hmm. pigs, I would not be surprised if that somehow ends up in the, the food chain. Again, I'm going to wait until we see additional research on what's actually the, the impact of eating styrofoam, but it is still a very very cool thing that mealworms can eat styrofoam and and recycle it that is super interesting you know one of the more compelling areas of waste management that i'm seeing is things of that nature you know to what extent are we going to see major waste management facilities municipalities look to sources like this you know the mealworms of the world to handle the just immense amount of waste that we're seeing end up in landfill every single day 
I want to segue slightly to the future for Grubbly Farms because, you know, over the course of the conversation, it's been really interesting to hear about and learn how you stumbled into the opportunity and all the different pathways available to you. What does the next 18 to 24 months look like for Grubbly? And what are you most excited about for the future of Grubbly? Sure. So the next 18 to 24 months are still primarily going to be focused on the pet chicken market, expanding our product lines, providing additional beneficial products for for chickens, which in turn hopefully will benefit the, the backyard chicken owners. Outside of that, our goal is to expand into additional pet markets. We're not certain exactly which ones we want to jump to first, but obviously dog is very enticing just given how large the market is and there is a very large overlap between the number of people like if if you have chickens there's like a 75 percent chance or 80 percent chance that you have a dog as well so there's a, a large overlap from our customer base into dogs mm-hmm. which is nice too because once a particular household comes to love grubbly 1.0 Man, I mean, I could see a a really plausible pathway for you announcing these new products and the all these customers are already trusting your brand and your voice and the quality that you're putting out. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Another question that I really have enjoyed asking founders like yourself is this notion of the idea graveyard. Right? We all have a running list of ideas, most of which never see the light of day many of which are really bad ideas and a a select few that you would love to work on, but just don't have the time to do so. So what is one of those ideas that if you had the time you'd work on, but for the time being is just rotting away in your idea graveyard? (laughs) Oh, that is an interesting question. So I I personally have always been very interested in aquaculture, which is commercial fish farming Mm -hmm. and at least just from a product standpoint i would love to get involved with making a commercial feed for trout salmon things of that nature and then uh, this doesn't necessarily make sense from a business application since we're focused so heavily on direct consumer but looking at the food chain overall i would love or I, I always thought it would be really unique to vertically integrate into having fish farms as well. And so part of Grubbly Farms product line would be insect fe- insect fed fish or insect raised trout, salmon, what have you. Again, just mostly because that 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 farming has has fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Could that work? I mean, I, I I don't know what the the stats are there, but there's definitely quite a few households that have either indoor aquariums or they have backyard little ponds where they they have fish of their own it could it feels like that could be you know a reasonable stepping stone for you guys in the future no oh it, it certainly is in the, in the future again the the vertical integration where we actually operate some of the farms is probably oh, a little mm-hmm. bit too big of a stretch but we definitely and I guess in the the longer term, timeline we do anticipate getting into commercial animal feed as well for chickens and fish super interesting 
Patrick, but before we part ways, I'd love to roll the red carpet for you. Are, are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, you know, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. Well, I just want to just want to thank you for the the opportunity for for being on here, and thank you for reaching out to our team. But if you if anybody is interested in learning more about the backyard chicken market, so we have a wonderful blog on our website that talks all about chicken nutrition, how to get a chicken to love you, what are the benefits of an insect-based diet for chickens, and then if you're interested in if you already have chickens and are interested in feeding your your chickens a uh, healthy natural diet, then definitely check out GrowBlueFarms.com. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at InGoodHands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.